So I've been asked a few times who my favorite poet is. And the answer, I have to say, is kind of embarrassing um, because I would love to tell you that it's someone distinguished like Tennyson or Dickinson or it's somebody real deep like Thoreau or Emerson, but it's not. My, uh, my favorite poet, his works have titles like Jimmy Jet and his TV set and uh, Backward Bill and Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. Okay, I'm a Shel Silverstein fan. Okay, he is, he is by far and away, he's, we read him all the time at my house. Um, I've always loved his combination of the honest and the outrageous with a good dash of inappropriateness thrown in. Just makes for really, really good kids' poetry, whether you're a little kid or a grown-up kid like me. Um, and uh, there's always such a good bit of wisdom thrown in with, uh, with his humor and everything. Every, he addresses everything from not worrying about your life to uh, being careful not to pick your nose too much because of the sharp-toothed snail that lives up inside of it who is just dying to bite your nail off or your ring off or if you go in deep enough, just bite the whole thing off, right? If you don't know that, I promise you there's a poem about it. It's great. Love it, okay? Used it on my kids a couple of times. Like, it could happen, all right? One of my favorite poems by him, though, is entitled, Listen to the Mustn'ts, and it goes like this. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts. Listen to the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, and then listen close to me, because anything can happen, child. Anything can be. And that is the truly amazing thing about hope, isn't it? Hope does not care one whit about the naysayers. It does not care how unlikely the desired outcome may be. Hope whips around like Han Solo and says, never tell me the odds. Okay, that is why hope is so infectious. That is why we need hope so badly. That's what makes hope a powerful and priceless thing and so precious to hold on to because of its conviction that what may come will indeed come. That's why the author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, that it will actually happen. Faith gives us assurance about the things that we can't yet see, that they're really going to be there. Hope is such an integral part of what it means to be a human being, but it is even more integral in the identity of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Because so much of who we are and so much of what we are about is placed on something that we hope for. Something that exists beyond our capacity to reach or understand all of the time, and yet we have the confidence that what may be, will be. But here's the thing. What happens when hope is fulfilled, but the way it is satisfied does not meet your expectations? Hope shows up and becomes reality, but it looks different. What do you do? See, that's one of the powerful things about hope, but also a drawback sometimes, is that hope allows you and I to tailor the outcomes to our personal desires. It makes it more meaningful at times. For example, the image of heaven that I have is different than the image of heaven that you have. And the reason that I know this is because my image of heaven includes the ability 
for me to ask God if I can take a few hundred thousand years of leave, or however long it takes, to go on my own personal geek fanboy Star Trek and explore all of the awesomeness of this galaxy. All those stars that I can only see from like, you know, way, way, way out there. Like, like I believe that I may have the chance to ask God, can I go see all that stuff that you made that nobody's ever gotten to see up close? Can I go witness that and just exult in your glory of the creation that you've made? And maybe even another galaxy or two. I mean, I've got eternity. I can ask for extra leave. Okay. Right? See, that may not be a part of you. That may not be a part of your, of your, you know, deal. But that's a fantasy I've had ever since I was a kid and wanted to be an astronaut and then realized that I wasn't even going to be able to fly a cargo plane because I got these. Okay? But, you know, I've, I mean, that's, that's a part of my hope. And, and I have no idea whether it's actually going to happen or not. I don't even know what this galaxy is going to look like when it's all said and done, right? But I have that hope. I do know that heaven is going to be completely satisfactory for me whether that outcome happens or not. I'd love it if it did. But I still believe that being in the presence of the Lord is going to satisfy me in every way forever, whether that ever happened or not. That may just be my limited, that my, my limited finite human understanding of wanting to explore that piece of creation. And God may have something in store for me that makes that just not even matter anymore. I have no idea. But I expect it. And I hope for it. And I'm pretty certain I have a loving God who would say, you know what, that's your thing. You've always been an explorer ever since you were a little kid. Explore my creation some. Maybe. It'd be nice. But expectations are designed to pass away when the thing that we hope for actually comes to light. Paul put it this way. It's like now we see very, very darkly like we're looking at a cracked, dusty mirror with the lights off. That's the way we view reality. But someday, the lights are going to turn on. And we're going to see it clearly as though we're standing face to face. Reality will shift into focus for the first time ever for us. And so our expectations are designed to pass away, whether that's now or whether that's in the light of eternity, once reality comes. But I think we've all been there a time or two when we find ourselves with reality being not quite as shiny as our expectations. And it becomes hard to accept what's in front of us as real fulfillment, even if we know that it is no less than God's explicit answer to the thing that we were hoping for and the thing that we were earnestly seeking. Sometimes that's when it's hardest, when the good thing from God that we need isn't the same as the good thing that we might have wanted, even though it could totally satisfy us in every way. And that's exactly where the Jewish leadership finds themselves with Jesus in our passage in John chapter 8. His I am statement is in this same exchange after the Feast of Tabernacles where we talked a few weeks ago about I am the light of the world. And if you remember that far back in our series, Jesus' whole point is to say, I am what brings clarity, and I am what brings reality into your life. I am the thing that brings life into focus for you. So that you can see God, and you can see you, and you can see clearly again. And now he's saying this to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and Jesus, by their understanding, is kind of this newly minted rabbi. He is kind of associated with the Pharisees. 
But he is very much outside the traditional teachings, especially regarding sin and righteousness. And they've already gotten into a few conflicts there. And he is so far out there that he seems to be kind of a radical with no real credentials to back up his teaching. And so for him to tell them, look, let's be honest, you're living in the dark and I'm the one who can show you the way things really are, is kind of like me, it would kind of be like me as an unknown graduate student walking into like Regent College's Department of Biblical Studies and gathering a bunch of guys like Eugene Peterson and Gordon Fee together and saying, guys, we need to talk about your theology here. You've got an okay start, but you really missed some things, and I'm here to clarify what you're wrong about. It's kind of audacious, isn't it? If you're not the son of God, it makes you look really arrogant, <laughs> to be honest, right? But Jesus is, and that's where he's coming from. He has this authority, and he's revealing it. Now, obviously, this does not have the effect of the resident experts of the time saying, oh, yes, please, we want to learn and understand where we were wrong. I mean, maybe if they're being sarcastic, but not... Not in any genuine sense, right? For them, it's an attack on their identity. It's an attack on their expectations of what righteousness and being a child of Israel is really all about. So they start debating him. They start questioning him. And it becomes apparent pretty quickly from John's narrative that they're getting served pretty handily in this debate. All right? Not that it's a fair matchup. They're going against the Messiah, right? They're going against God's anointed one. Oh, wait, but they don't know that yet. Or do they? Or do they? If you look back at the end of John chapter 7, there is a discussion between the Jewish leaders about the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. He's showed up at this big feast, and everybody's talking about them, and the temple guards have tried to arrest him. But then, basically, he said, look, the force of his teaching and the fact that, frankly, he's, he's right about everything he's saying. We, we can't arrest him in front of the people. They... They really think that he knows what he's talking about, and we think he might too. And this popular discussion, the popular opinion with the crowds is, is just splitting the leadership on the issue of the Jewish people. And while some like Nicodemus are starting to publicly ask the question, could this guy be the Messiah? Many of them are silent, and some of the strong personalities are shutting down any talk of it because they assume he's from Galilee, not Bethlehem. But there's been talk about it. And throughout this conversation in John 8, you can see Jesus getting more and more overt in his claims to be the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of the promise of God to Israel. And this is not lost on the religious leaders by any stretch of the imagination, okay? They know what he's saying. And you can see it by their line of questioning because it gets exceedingly more abusive throughout the chapter. It kind of reminds me of an argument on an internet forum, actually. You ever seen one of those? I hope you, I, if, if you have, I hope you haven't actually gotten caught up in it. I hope you've gotten some popcorn and just kind of sat there and gone, oh, this is interesting. Wow, this is amazing. You know, because what inevitably ends up happening is you get into a bait, you get into some sort of debate, and one side looks like they're kind of, you know, masterfully presenting their viewpoint, and the other side starts resorting to insults about the intelligence and sometimes even the racial origin of the opposing viewpoint, okay? And it's really funny because that's actually what starts happening in John chapter 8. Are, not, are we not correct at the beginning of John? Where does it say it? Like, um, okay, so like halfway through the chapter, 
Basically, they say, aren't we correct, based on your outlandish statements, Jesus, that you're either of questionable ethnic origin or just a little bit touched in the head right now? The NIV says it really succinctly. Are we not correct in saying that you are a demon-possessed Samaritan? Wow. Okay. Thanks, guys. That that shored your argument up really well. Um, Good job. Good rhetoric. See, I... But the problem is, is that this explosiveness is coming from one simple nagging realization. If this is the Messiah, and if he really is standing in front of us right now, he does not match our expectations at all. And this is a problem. Messiah is supposed to be a powerful political figure, not some homeless itinerant preacher. Messiah is supposed to validate and fulfill everything about us being children of God, not come in here and criticize our righteousness and talk about social justice. That's not, that's not what Messiah is supposed to do. He's messing it all up. Who does he think he is? And expectation meets reality. And when expectation and fulfillment meet and expectation is found lacking... We tend to want our expectations over reality. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that he is more than the sum of their expectations of these leaders. And he digs really deep into their history and really, really deep into their hopes with this statement about before Abraham was, I am. But he also brings up different conclusions because he does that. And these conclusions also kind of have to challenge us a little bit, but they can also encourage us. I think they're designed to help us see Jesus as Jesus. And there's a caution there, but they're also designed to bring some great encouragement into our lives about who he is and what he's about. The first conclusion Jesus wants us to draw from this statement is this, the same as the religious leaders. He is the only fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. The promise of salvation. And we've got to realize that as soon as Jesus starts talking about being children of Abraham at the beginning of the chapter, he is diving into the heart of the Jewish identity. What does it really mean to be an Israelite? What does it really mean to be an Israelite? It means that you hang everything you are on three promises. Three promises that were given to Abraham throughout the course of Genesis from about 15 through about 22. Okay? It means that you hang on the promise that one, God has prepared a place for you. He has prepared a land for you. You who had no place and were wandering and had no place of your own, God has prepared a place for you. So your identity is tied to a land. It is tied to a place. Okay? And then it's also tied to the idea that you are a chosen nation. From the very, very beginning, when, when, when... Basically, God says to Abraham, I just want you to take a look at the sand that's out in front of you in the desert. Look at all those little grains of sand. Or look at the stars in the sky like we were talking about earlier. Look at all that galaxy out there, all those stars that you can't even count, okay? That's how I'm going to make your descendants. I'm going to make them into a nation. And not just any nation, but a great nation. Not a great nation because of who they are, but a great nation because they belong to me. And so you're tied to this identity of a place. You're tied to this identity of being a chosen nation, but not just a chosen nation because God is benevolent, but because God has chosen you for a specific 
purpose. God has chosen your nation to bring about the salvation of the world, of everybody. And that idea continues to morph, okay? And, it, and it's, really gotten, it's really gotten very, very insular by the time that you get to Jesus' time. It's, it's more become a thing where, where Israel is going to come to power and they are going to be like they were in the days of Solomon. It's very nationalistic. And, and the world is going to be saved, not because they're worthy of saving. The world is going to be saved because Israel is going to lead them. I mean, that's really kind of where it goes. In varying degrees, that's where that idea has begun to morph into. But at the core of it all was this idea that there was a reason you became God's chosen people. Because he had a really big plan. And it's the only unfulfilled piece, at least at, at this time, it's the only truly unfulfilled piece of the promise. And that's where everybody's hope is. And that's where everyone's expectation lies, is that God has given us the place. Yes, we were, we, we were taken into exile for a little while, but we're back. God has not withheld his covenant for us. He has kept his identity in the remnant that came back from exile, and we are still his chosen people. He has still called us. He has still, you know, all of these, all of these uh, images that Jesus has touched on throughout the Gospel of John of, of being the gate for the sheep and being the shepherd for the sheep. We're the sheep of his hand. We are the vine that he tends. You know, we are all of these images, right, of their identity. Jesus has continued to touch on. And now he goes really to the root of their identity, this promise that was made by God, this covenant promise. In the Hebrew Midrash, okay, which is kind of the local preaching among the rabbis, if you will, there was a developing story about the laughter of Abraham when God makes this covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. At first glance, you'd think it's a simple fact that God tells a 100-year-old guy that he and his almost 100-year-old wife or should start fashioning a crib for their new baby, okay? And that would spark some incredulity in me if I, even if I did believe the word of God, I would laugh at it because it's like, okay, you said it, fine, I, you said it, but I have no idea how you're going to make that happen. Um, okay. But according to this teaching, there was more going on than just kind of a, an outbursted laugh of disbelief. It was the delight of Abraham as his disbelief got overpowered by this thing called hope. See, the teaching goes like this. Is when God is saying to him, you know, look at, look at, the, look at the sand out in the desert. Look at the, look at the stars in the sky. And it's just God and Abraham and he's talking about covenant. That we have like this little itty-bitty piece of the covenant, right? This, just these couple of sentences. But the idea is that somehow in that exchange, God kind of pulled the curtain of time back a little bit for Abraham. God gave Abraham a glimpse, if you will. Not the full-on understanding of everything, but that, that somehow Abraham got to step out of, of, of his own vision and really got to just see the entire thing stretching all the way out 
to the end. And his laugh is not just a laugh of like, I don't know how you're going to do this, but it is more like just this, 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 this laugh of the outcome of Messiah coming from this incredible act. It reframes Abraham's words in Genesis 17, 17, where he says, how can all this be happening to Sarah and I in our state? So that it's not this statement of, I'm not sure whether I believe this, but it's more of this overjoyed, I cannot believe this is happening to us in this way. The idea that Abraham got this glimpse of how big God's plan really was, saw Christ in it, and all he could do in response is just shake his head in wonder and amusement and chuckle, Lord, I don't know how you do this stuff, but I love it. Now, when you look at that, and then you look at what Jesus says in John chapter 8, 39, and his discussion with the religious leaders, and he basically questions their heritage as children of Abraham. It's not an insult like the Samaritan jibe that they've thrown at him. He just really lays it out and says, look, heirs of Abraham act like Abraham. They trust God. They look expectantly, and they rejoice in what God is doing. You're not doing any of that. Instead, you're not trusting God. Your eyes are closed to his fulfillment. And instead of embracing what God is doing and rejoicing in it, you're resisting and actually making plans to kill his promise. What's wrong with you? Are you children of Abraham or not? And he seals the argument by using their own local preaching story against them. When he says in verse 56, I tell you the truth, Abraham, your father, when he got that glimpse down the corridor of time, when when God pulled the curtain back and let him just kind of get just a little idea of what all was going to happen, he looked down the corridor of history and he saw me in this day. He saw my day coming and he cheered for it. See, in this way, in this dialogue, Jesus is both affirming his identity as Messiah and in essence saying, look, if your expectations don't match with the reality of who I am, your expectations need to be cast off. They need to be cast off in the light of the revealed, fulfilled hope that is me. And if you can't do that, you may not actually be heirs of the promise as much as you think you are. It's kind of like a, a get-right-church statement from Jesus, frankly. Okay, that's, that's where he's laying it out for them. If your expectations can't match the reality of who I am, then, then maybe you're not, as an heir, you're not as much an heir of the promise as you think you are. At least you're not acting like it. And that, I think, is the cautionary statement that Jesus makes to us as well, is how often do our expectations of Jesus overshadow who he really is. I can't answer what that looks like for you. I really can't. I mean, because I, I don't know the heart and soul of your mind, but I do know me. And I know that there are times where I, I look at a passage and it, it irks me. And I'm like, really? You really didn't mean it like that, did you? You, re- you really didn't, do I have to, you know, and there's this, there's this internal struggle with me. In my expectations of how this should work based on what I think should happen and the way it really is sometimes. And when our expectations 
about God and our expectations about being a disciple and our expectations about salvation and our expectations about whatever it is that involves the Christian life, when those bump up against the reality of God's word, whether that's the word that's in the Bible or his revealed word in Jesus or the word that he is revealing to us through his spirit right now, like when, they, when our expectations hit reality, what wins? Do we allow God's reality to transform us even when it's uncomfortable? Even when it means discarding some expectations that may be very near and dear to our hearts? Or do we keep ourselves boxed into the expectations and we do not allow the Spirit of God to free us from those things and grow us in those things? Jesus is not dismissing the religious leaders here, as much as he is like pleading with them. I mean, he's challenging them and they don't like it, but he is, I mean, he is pleading with them to come around to his way of thinking. There's another conclusion that Jesus makes abundantly clear here, and that is simply this, that he is eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. And I think it's important that we realize this is not just Jesus drawing on the name of Yahweh and identifying himself with God, although that's obviously part of what he's doing, and that's definitely how it was taken, if you can tell, since the response of the leaders is to pick up rocks and try and throw, and throw them at him and stone him for blasphemy, for claiming divinity. Jesus, though, is claiming this about himself. He is claiming identity with Yahweh, but he is also establishing his priority and his security over all of creation. It's important that we realize he's not even saying something as simple as, I existed before Abraham did. Jesus steps outside of time and history, and he says it in the present tense. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And to those around him, whether they believe it or not, the claim is really, really clear. I supersede your identity as children of Abraham. My roots go deeper. My identity is more powerful. To be a real heir to the promise is to put your hope in me because my name and my life are bigger than any other identity you have ever claimed. And because of that, I am the only one who is worthy of satisfying your hope because I am that hope realized yesterday today and forever like we talked about with the kids later on in the book of hebrews the writer would pen that statement jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever consider the power of that statement we talk about this idea of god being eternal we talk about this idea of christ being eternal but i don't know if we really grasp this idea that who Jesus is does not change. It does not waver. It does not shift based on the circumstances of my life or the circumstances of history. There's not one day where he says, you know, I'm just not feeling this whole good shepherd bit right now. I think I'm just going to take a vacation. But I'm sure you're going to do all right on your own, and I'll see you when I get back. There is no point where he casts off his identity as the light that brings clarity or the bread that brings sustenance or the vine that is our source of growth and abundant life or the true resurrection that brings the kingdom from way out there into our here and now. 
All of those things are firm. They are always true. They are always more foundational than any promise that has ever been made, even this promise of Abraham or even before the foundations of the earth. Who he is always has been, always will be. They're trustworthy because they don't change, just like he doesn't change. And that means we can hang our hope on him because he is, not just was, before all things, and he always will be. So what is our takeaway from all this? What does Jesus want to place in our hearts with this I am claim? I think it goes back to the idea of hope again. Like I said, hope can be a really powerful thing for us. But what happens when our expectations of hope don't match what gets revealed? We deal with blows to our hope daily. The job interview doesn't go the way that we wanted to. The money just isn't there. The test comes back negative or positive, whichever one you didn't want. They come at us big and small. They try to erode our hope. Jesus reminds us of this simple fact, though. The only way hope really comes to fruition is when it comes to fruition in him. My expectations of what Jesus should or should not do for me and my circumstances should never, should never ever resist being blown away by what he's actually doing. Whether I can understand it or even agree with it or not. Like we talked about last week in the illustration of the vine, True abundant life comes from being connected to the source of life, Jesus. And sometimes that means soaking up the sun. And sometimes that means getting our leaves cut back. But either way, it's existing in him and who he is. And our hope is that through all of it, this really is the abundant life. The only abundant life. And it's found nowhere else but Jesus. Not even in our expectations of Jesus. It's only found in him. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, though, if you think about it. Between my limited vision and this itch that I have to seem, that I seem to share with the rest of humanity of wanting to have my hands on the wheel of my life instead of letting him keep his hands on it, how will I be able to trust and surrender to him even if I know it's what I should do? That's where Jesus encourages us with the promise of eternity. I am eternal. I'm just as powerful, I'm just as loving, I'm just as knowledgeable, I'm just as able as I was at the dawn of creation and as I will be into eternity. I am the only unchanging thing for you. The one who is present in all of your places. Your yesterdays, your todays, and your forever. That past that you can't get over, can't seem to forgive yourself about, I'm there and I'm at work. Trust me. This present circumstance that seems to be so ginormous to you and you can't see your way around it, I can because I'm here with you. And I'm also on the other side of it at the same time. I know how it plays out. Those things in the future that you worry about, I'm already there. And I know how they play out too. And if you trust me, I'm going to get you exactly where you need to be. So you can listen to all the mustn'ts of your limited vision and your understanding. All those things that are clamoring to win your trust and your hope that will ultimately fail, that will ultimately not last, that are no better than soap bubbles that last for an instant and are gone, right? 
And Jesus says, and then you can listen to me, child. I am the one who is present in all of your places, and I say anything can happen. So put your hope in me and be ready for when I give you the glimpse of what might be, or when we get to look back over what I've been present through all the way through your life so that you, like Abraham, can shake your head and say with a laugh, I don't know how you do it, Jesus, but I love it. See, that's the promise that he makes to you and I. And that's the encouragement that he brings. If we're willing to let him be who he is, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he is the constant power that makes our hope become solid. You guys want to go ahead and come on up? And if I can have those that are getting ready to serve at the table, come on up. One of the ways that we respond to this hope is that we come to the table of mercy together. This mercy that is never failing, this mercy that is also new every morning at the same time. And we're going to do that now together here in just a moment. But I want you to see this. When you look at the promises of Jesus that are wrapped up around this idea of his body and his blood, these elements become a source of hope. And our participation in them is both an affirmation of that hope in him, and it's also allowing him to be the place that our hope can rest in. That's why we do this. You'll often see me talking with Reagan and Clay and Molly during our time at the table, and the questions we always ask are, why is this important? Why do we do this? And we talk about the hope that these things represent, that that there really is a sacrifice that is powerful enough to override my sin and restore me to God. And that there really exists a salvation that makes me clean, that washes me as white as snow, even when I don't feel like it. That allows me to journey into loving and being loved by God fully, the way that I was intended to all along. That those things really exist. And we come back to the table week to week to be reminded, to remember, to join the pieces of our understanding back together again. Because they get fragmented in the world that we live in, this world that tries to erode our hope. And in the middle of it, God brings us back to this and says, no, 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 no. Remember, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. My blood still covers. My body is still the sacrifice. And these elements that you take are elements of hope again. There really is hope that there is life, not just here, but full resurrected life now and to eternity. And as we take this cup and as we take this bread, we remember the hope that we are a part of that thing now and we are a part of it moving all the way through time and beyond into eternity. Those are the hopes that we hang ourselves on as disciples of Jesus. And those are the hope that is wrapped up in this body and in this blood. So as we come to the table now, I, I invite you to participate in the body and the blood as articles of hope again. This is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. They are proof positive of the promises that he's made. They are a sturdy place for you to rest your hope in today, tomorrow, and forever.
Because the one who promised is faithful, and the one who promised is eternal. He is the I Am. Let's pray together.